So we're starting a new series today, A Heart Like His, where we're going to look at some of the, uh, some of the things in the life of David. David's one of the great Bible characters that we have. Uh, and so one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, because if I was going to write the Bible, I would make my heroes look better than the Bible does. I mean, we begin with Abraham, who's the father of our faith, and we get to see when he doesn't have faith. He struggles with his faith, yet he's the father of our faith. Then we see, you know, virtually, you know, every, every hero of the Bible is flawed because they're real people. They're not mythological creatures. Uh, they're real people that are, that are coming to terms with trusting an amazing God. So this is true in the life of David. It's going to take us a little while to get to David, but, uh, but David is the second king in Israel. So one day, the children of Israel decide they want a king. So we're going to talk about that day, how Israel all of a sudden decides, okay, they look around and see everybody else has got a king. So they decide they want a king. So then it begins this whole process of selecting a king, and, and uh, so we're going to talk today a little bit about that and how that evolves uh, in this, in this series. So there's a lot of stuff. David has a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks about how he deals with people and, and trusting God and how you deal with difficulty. And when things don't happen, when you thought they would happen, does it ever happen to you? You know, you, you know, you feel like you've got a word from God or, or heartburn or something. Anyway, you had a pretty good indication. You thought God, well, something was moving a particular way and then it doesn't move that way at all for a long, long time. And you wonder, if you begin to question, is God true? Because, you know, I thought this was going to be easier. You know, I thought, you know. So how do we do this? So I want to, today, the, the children of Israel, they want a king. This is how it begins. And it came about when Samuel was old. Now, at this time, uh, Samuel is, is about 65 years old. Now, here's what, here's what you got to know about old. Old is a relative term. What is old? Older than me. That's right. So, you know, when you're 15, a 30-year-old seems ancient. You know. I mean, you may not know this, but if you're 45 years old, you can get the senior discount at virtually any place that has a teenager behind the counter. Because <laughs> to them, you're just nearly dead. <laughs> so... So Samuel is old. We know, we know from this is that what's interesting about this story is that uh, he's about 65 and he lived, he served as the prophet of Israel for another 35 years. I mean, 35 years is a pretty good stint, right? But he serves, he's already served from the age of like 15. He's already served like 50 years as the prophet of Israel after Eli died. And now he's, he's, probably 65 and he's going to serve right up to about a hundred. Uh, so, uh, old is relative. Uh, so because he's old, he had appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were serving in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, thanks for reminding me, uh, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeased in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So they're asking for a king, and God's saying, I am their king. But they don't want me to be the king. They want, they want a king like all the other kings, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, then, listen to the voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord of the people who ask him of a king. Ask of him a king. So the next couple of verses, he's telling them. Now, if you get a king here, I want to tell you what's going to happen if you get a king. What is the king going to do? Well, he's going to tax you. And he's going to take your sons and he's going to make them serve in the army. He's going to make them drive his chariots. So he's going to take your daughters, he's going to make them servants in the palace. And then he's going, to, he's going to take the best of your fields and the best of your flocks, and he's going to use them to feed his armies. And he's going to tax you. Basically, he says, he's going to tax you into poverty. He's going to take the good from you and use it for himself. Do you still want a king? They're like, yeah. Yeah, we, it sounds good to us. Nevertheless, The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the heart of why they wanted a king is they wanted a king because they wanted to be like everybody else. They, they recognized that they were different than all the other little tribal kings around them. And so instead of having God as their king, they said, no, we want to be like everybody else. We've seen these kings that are invading, these kings around. We've seen what they do. And so they, they want to be like everybody else. And that's one of the things that you and I, we have to struggle with. The reality is that the world system is always pulling us to comply The world system, the system around us that is not Christ, that is powered and controlled by, at at the very base of it, by Satan, the the powers of this world are always working to distort whatever is good and godly. And so you're always battling that. We're always battling that. You know, you can see uh, in everything... It's just a constant bombardment. You watch television shows, it's a constant, you know, moving the lines, changing, changing uh, what is defined. John 2.15 says, don't love the world or anything in the world. We're supposed to love people, but not things, not the, not the philosophy of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh The lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world system wants to say that you solve your problems with people, you solve your problems with things, you solve your problems with power. And that's not godly. 
So we're always struggling with this. We're as, as, since we live in the world, the world, the call for us is to be in the world, not of it. So we have to love the world, but not be tainted by the world. So this is a challenge because we're immersed in it. We're in the world. We're surrounded by people. We're surrounded by sinful people. And, and we sin. I mean, some of y'all did once or twice, right? I mean, we still sin. We still struggle with sin. So we still struggle with sin. So how do we, in the midst of that, how do we influence people? And yet that's the call. How do we, how do we have a greater influence than we are being influenced? That's the challenge. How do we, so how do we influence the world instead of the world influencing us? That's the challenge. So we have to hold fast to the gospel, and other than just holding on and holding the fort, our, our real hope, the only real hope of lasting change is when lives are changed through the gospel. Now, where does, how does change take place? The Roman world was changed. The Roman culture was changed. And the Roman culture wasn't changed because they wrote new laws. The Roman culture was changed amidst great persecution and the control of emperors that wanted to be worshipped. And in the midst of that, Christianity spread and grew and changed the culture of Rome because people changed and became Christ followers. So they they wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. And God doesn't want you to be like everybody else. He wants you to be unique. He wants you to be different. He wants you to be his. And then, then they wanted a king that would go out and fight their battles. Now, that, there's a misconception there, right? You know, that's like, that's like saying, I want the government to go out and fight my battles. How are they going to fund that? They're going to take money out of your pocket. And who, who's going to go do it? Your sons and your, your daughters are going to go. It's not going to be just people that are going to show up. So they're, they're under this misconception that, you know, we want a king that's going to somehow make this where it doesn't cost us anything. And there's no way to do that. There's, the cost doesn't change. They think a king is going to solve their problems in a way so that it won't cost them and be difficult to them. A king is going to solve all our problems. And we're that way. We're, we're often looking for the thing that will solve our problems. And we say things like this. We think, you know, this would, my life, this would solve my problems. What I need is a husband. That was kind of a, a, a laugh of experience, wasn't it? <laughs> what, I, what I need is a wife that would solve, you know, if I had a... Now, that's not to say that having a husband or a wife does not solve some problems. But you also need to recognize you get a whole new batch. Right? I mean, we're, I mean, not, that's not to say that it's not a, I'm not saying it's not a good thing. It's not a good deal. But if you think that if I get married, I won't have any problems, you won't have the same problems, but you're still going to have some problems and hopefully you can work, you'll work through those. But we know statistically that a lot of people don't work through those or, and we think about, we think about stuff will solve our problems. We think, you know, if, if, I, if I could just get out of this apartment and get into a house, you know, and then you get into a house, and then you think, if I could just get out of this house and get back into the apartment. <laughs> because, you know what the problem is with the, with the 
house or the apartment, you can't call the maintenance man. You are the maintenance man. And he's like, oh. And, you know, the things with, you know, stuff is great. We all got stuff. I love stuff. I've got stuff. You've got stuff. We all like to have stuff. Stuff's wonderful. It's, it's, it's great to have stuff. Stuff breaks. So stuff is not an answer. It, it is an answer to some things, but not, it's, not the, it's not the ultimate answer to life. I mean, it's, it doesn't answer everything. So we need to recognize that. It's good. It won't really solve your problems. It, it will solve one problem. Okay, now I've got a yard, but now I've got another problem. Now I have to mow that yard. I didn't have a yard because I need a yard because I was walking the dog. And that was a pain. Leave the apartment, go walk the dog. I solved that problem. We have a house. But now instead of walking the dog, I have to mow the yard. So you, Israel's problem is unique in that they have something that the other nations don't have, and that is that they have God as their king. They have a, a benefit, and you and I have that same benefit. If we're followers of Christ, we have something that the world doesn't have in the midst of our problems. It doesn't mean, you know, Christianity is not an end to your problems. I wish it was. That's not how it works. But how it does work that in our problems, we're not alone. In our problems, we have, we have the king with us who has, but they're dissatisfied with God. They're, they're wanting the visible and the tangible. And we live in a very visible and tangible age where uh, we just want stuff and we want it, we want it yesterday. So they ask for a king, so they get a king. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath. Remember these names. There'll be a test later. The son of Aphath, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor, and he had a son whose name was Saul. And all of that was not about the king. It wasn't about Saul. It was about his dad, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. So, so Saul is a good-looking guy. He's the most handsome man in Israel, and he is taller than any of the other people. He's head and shoulders above the other people. He's, you know, he's 12, 14 inches taller than everybody else. It's, and here's, here's the thing about this. It's easy to be swayed by appearance. Right? And things are not always what they appear. That's just what you have to learn. Things are not always as they appear. When Samuel saw saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is, because there's a whole thing where where Saul's out looking for donkeys that are lost. And uh, and so in in this, he interacts with Samuel about the, he's trying to find the lost donkeys. He's thinking that Samuel's going to help him find the lost donkeys. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning, I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for the donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. For whom is, for, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? I, okay, I messed that up pretty good, so let's try reading that again. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? So he kind of ends with this, this compliment to Saul who's just come looking for his donkeys, right? 
like I'm coming to Samuel. He's the prophet of God. I'm hoping he can tell me where the donkeys are. So he shows up. He's asking about the donkeys. And Samuel says, hey, and aren't you the one everybody's looking for? And he's like, no, I'm looking. I'm sorry. You misunderstood. I'm looking for donkeys. Uh, no, I'm, nobody's looking for me. So he really compliments him. So Saul says, Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family of the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? He said, so why are you giving these compliments? So we see that it appears, it appears that Samuel is very humble. And then we, then we read a couple, another chapter later in verse Samuel 10. This is when he's being, they're actually bringing the tribes together and Samuel is going to make Saul the king. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. So they're picking, so, so they're showing, okay, it's this, this. Then they brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families and the Matrite family was taken and Saul the son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, they could not, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. So he's hiding. So they ran and took him from there, and they stood among the people. He was taller than the other people from his shoulders upward. Now, it would seem from such humble beginnings, you know, that he seems like he's being humble, that he's, he says to Samuel, you know, not me, you know, I'm nobody. My family's nobody. And then when, when they want to make him king, he's hiding himself in the baggages, uh, or the baggage. Uh, it would seem that he was being humble. The difference is, it's not humility, it's insecurity. And there's a difference between humility and insecurity. Humility is when you make yourself low. In other words, where you lower yourself. We humble ourselves before God. We make ourselves low before God. We voluntarily do that. Humility is to make ourselves low. Insecurity is the fear that other people will make us low. Insecurity comes about when we feel like, oh gosh, you know, they're going to make, I'm not, I'm not sure this king thing's going to work out. What if he, they don't pick me? You know, Samuel's already told me they're going to pick me, but what if they don't pick me? So I'm going to hide. And if, if they pick me, they're going to have to really look for me. First Samuel chapter 10, verse one. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, it's not the Lord anointed you rule over Israel. And then we go down to a couple more verses to verse eight, and he gives him some real important instructions. Now he's just anointed him as king. He's just been anointed as king of Israel. Verse eight, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So Samuel says, okay, he anoints him as king. Then he says, now listen, I want you to go down to Gilgal and I want you to wait for me for seven days. And a lot happens in those next seven days. Because once Israel, once the Philistines find that there's a king in Israel, then they want to have a war. 
chapter 13, verse 1. So there's three chapters of kind of out of timeline stuff. In the... Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. So he reigned for a long time. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 13 verse 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came and camped in Michmash, east of Beth Haven. So the Philistines here, they're going to camp, which is the, you know, Israel's long-term enemy and nemesis, always pestering them. Uh, and so they're, they're coming out against them and with a lot of people. You know, they describe it as people like the sands of the sea. One of the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for they were hard-pressed. You know, they're saying, this is bad. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. It's like every good hiding place was taken. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. So some of them even went back out of the promised land. They went back over the Jordan. But as for Saul, he was in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So Saul's like, you know, he's a brand new king, and uh, his first battle is approaching, and all the people are leaving. They're, 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 they're afraid. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. This is just always the case. We always feel like God's late. And uh, I've said this, and you've probably heard me say this before. You know, some people will say God is never late. That's not true. It's never too late for God. But, you know... Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. I mean, I, if I'm Daniel, I'm like saying, hey, God, how about, you know, saving me before the lion's den? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fire, got delivered out of the fiery furnace. So a lot of times God delivers us out of stuff that we would have preferred have never gotten into. So in our view, we would say, well, God's never late. Well, it's never too late for God because God was able to get him out of the fiery furnace. He was able to get Daniel out of the lion's den. He certainly, you know, I think a great example is Lazarus. You know, Lazarus was dead. You know, and Jesus deliberately delayed so that he would be dead a long time before he raised him from the dead. You know, if I think if you had Lazarus, you might say, hey, bud, I love you, but you were late. So the same issue is often we feel that. We feel that. So here it's a timing issue. It's a patience issue. And, and, uh, and, and we're impatient. We, I mean, have, you ever, have we ever lived in a more impatient time than this time? I mean, we, we are impatient people. Because now that we have, you know, these communicators in our pockets... Uh, if you text someone and you, they don't respond rapidly enough, if you're a parent, you think maybe, well, they're probably dead. Uh, uh, you know, something horrible has happened. Uh, I mean, or it just makes you angry. You ignored my text. Well, I, I was actually in the middle of something. 
But we, we, don't, we don't even give room for that. It's like, you know, <laughs> you'll get. And uh, it, what's funny is now that, you know, our kids are out of the house, our kids do to us what we did to them. Like, if they call and can't get in touch with one of us, I mean, you could say, if, if we're sitting there and I don't answer my phone, in 15 seconds, Tina's phone's going to ring. It's like, where are y'all? None of your business. <laughs> of course, we don't do that because we don't want them to stop calling us. Uh, but we're all that way. We're just so impatient. We're, we live in a very impatient age. We, you know, um, it, we used to communicate very slowly. I mean, you would mail somebody a letter and you might not get a response for a month. We're, we're, we're just very impatient. And so we see, this, we see this impatience. We have this built into us. It's not new. Even Paul, even Saul, not Paul, Saul is impatient. And he waited seven days according to the point in time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering, scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And it came about that as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came. Isn't that the way it always is? So he, you know, it's probably even within the seven days. But he's thinking, oh, I just don't have any more time. I, we, you know, it, we can't wait any longer. Everybody's going to leave. There's not going to be anybody here to fight this battle with me. It's, it will ultimately lead to defeat because I didn't get the blessing of the Lord. And so I've got to do something. And I've got to do something right now. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed time and that the Philistines were assembling in Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So I, go, I don't want to do it, but I don't know how you twist your own arm, but you know, he did it. So the re- he, these are the reasons he gives. The people were scattering. He actually says, Samuel, you didn't show up. It's really your fault. Really, really, Samuel. If you had showed up just a little bit earlier, you'd saved us both a lot of trouble. So it's really your fault. I forced myself to disobey. Samuel said to Saul, have you acted? You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you from... For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, how long was it from the time that Samuel was anointed king until he messed up? Seven days. Seven days, seven days, seven days. God said, okay, if you had been faithful, your kingdom would have endured. In other words, you, you would have, there would have been other people on the throne to follow. But since you haven't listened to me, since you didn't do what I told you to do, your kingdom will not endure. Now, Saul remains king for 42 more years. He's king for 40. He's 30 when he starts. He's 72 when he dies. 42 more years, he's king of Israel. 
But after seven days, God says, I've picked somebody else to take your place. Now we, with history, know that it's David. Saul didn't know it was David. You know why Saul didn't know it was David? Because David's not going to be born for another 12 years. He didn't, have any, he didn't have any idea who it was going to be. David's not even going to be born for 12 years. And he's not even going to be anointed to take Saul's place until, until he's 15. It's going to be another 27 years before anything has happened. And who, man. Just God just doesn't get in a hurry sometimes. And that's, what, that, that's hard for us. We get impatient with God. We get impatient with his timelines. We, we struggle with obedience because we don't want to wait and do things God's way. You know, basically what he's saying, hey, Samuel, Samuel is just saying to Saul, Saul, I want you to learn to listen to God and do things his way. So I want you to wait seven days till I get there and I'll do the sacrifice, but wait seven days till I get there. I want you to, you need to learn important lessons, Saul. You need to learn how to do things God's way in God's time. So a lesson we all have to learn. We all have to learn how to do things God's way in God's time. We get impatient with God. And so you have to assume that Saul is thinking in that moment, I know Samuel told me to do this, but in this moment, I know Samuel told me to wait till he got here, but in this moment, the people are leaving, and if the people leave, we're all going to die, right? The people leave, we're all going to die, so there's a good reason for this. There's a good reason for this, because I need to offer the sacrifice now because it makes sense. It's reasonable for me to do it now. For me to disobey. He missed God's moment in his life because he couldn't wait. He got impatient. We often, we, you and I, often miss God's best because we won't wait for God's timing. We, so you have to say, Saul in that moment believed that his disobedience was both reasonable and rational and that he knew better than either Samuel or God in that moment. Right? You're not convinced. Okay. So here's where we struggle. We think we're smarter than God. So we think things like now because of we've been because of culture we think things like this what an idiot god is to think that you know i'm going to wait till i'm married to have sex i mean yeah you know back in the back in the olden days people were getting married when they're 14 so you know they waited you know a year after the onset of puberty to get married. But now we're waiting until 30. You think I'm going to wait 15, 20 years before I have sex? I know better than God. I'm not going to wait. So then we get lots of surprises and things we have to deal with because we know better than God or we know better with God uh, 
even, even in stuff, because we want stuff. We'll, we'll buy stuff that we can't afford because we want it now. And just think, it's only 72 easy payments. <laughs> and, and, it, and we think, it, oh, it, it will be easy. And we don't really realize that it's really going to be hard. Because we're, we're impatient. And we all, all of us are. I mean, you know, this crazy, this crazy thing that God says, hey, listen, don't move in together before you get married. And one of the big reasons is it creates a situation where you're trapped economically. That in a relationship that you don't have the level of commitment that you do in marriage, and just because commitment doesn't necessarily make a great marriage, you have to work on it to have a great marriage, but you don't have the commitment that you have in marriage, yet you are financially in a bondage because you have created a financial, you've created a financial entity of two people that are making a commitment together to rent an apartment or whatever, but you don't have the emotional, you don't have the life commitment. So you have entangled your lives in a way that makes it difficult to entangle. But we do it and we think, hey, but it's, it's, we can't afford to not do it. So we make our, what we say is, God doesn't understand. God doesn't know economics. God does, God's not as smart as me. We have to be careful. That we're, you know, we're outsmarting God. And so we get impatient. I'm impatient. You're impatient. We're all impatient. So we have to struggle with where we let our impatience create a bondage that's much more difficult to get out of than we thought it was. I mean, doesn't God know that two can live as cheaply as one for half as long? Right? So, Tim Keller says this, the greatest nightmare of the approval addict is rejection. Of the power addict is humiliation. Of the comfort addict, suffering. And the control addict, uncertainty. I wanted to avoid that one. (laughs) I wanted to talk about everybody else. So, so God says that the problem, the problem with Saul is his heart. He says the problem is that I'm going to have to get somebody that has a different kind of heart. A man after my heart. See, because here's what you've got to understand. Behavior problems are not really behavior problems. They're heart problems. And the only way to really change, the only really, the way you would really change is not to just change your behavior. You have to change your heart. That's the power of the gospel. That's why, that's why we rejoice in the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not a behavior modification gospel. 
The power of the gospel is that the gospel changes our heart. And then in a, by a changed heart, we obey because we love. We don't obey to get love. We're not trying to please God and do things so God will say, ooh, I really like that one. I'm going to love him. No. We've come to Christ in the fullness of what Christ has done. and We've received his sacrifice on the cross. We believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we believe that he loved us and died for us and cares for us and brought us into his family. And so because we believe that, something happens when you come to Christ. He gives you a new heart. He takes the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And so that's, that's our call. That's our call. It's, it's, not, it's not a call of who, how do we do the right thing? It's like, but it's, it's more how do we believe the right thing about trusting God to change our hearts? So that's what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. How do, we, how do we get a new heart? What does it look like? How do we do that? Amen. I've got to stop. All right, stand up. The gospel is not about behavior that changes your life, but about grace that changes your heart. So, Lord, that's what we need. We need new hearts for old. We need changed hearts, hearts that have been made new. It's not just about my behavior, trying to line up my behavior so that I'll please you. It's about recognizing that I please you because of what Jesus did, and because of what Jesus did, now I want to please you. So, Lord, help me with my mixed up heart, my mixed up mind, to quit trying to win your approval and your love, because I already have it. But instead, let my heart be changed in such a way that it changes my behavior from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.